Well, good morning. I'd like to begin this morning by talking a little bit about a wonderful man named John Bunyan. So John Bunyan was a 17th century Puritan, and he's well known for a really famous book. You may know it, The Pilgrim's Progress. But what many people don't know is that he lived a life of great suffering. In the mid-1600s, his wife passed away, leaving him with four children, all alone, including one blind boy. And so all the while, he's ministering the gospel in the midst of a tumultuous time in the Anglican church, and then he's also trying to balance the need to love his family, to minister to his blind son, to tend to his congregation, and of course, mourn the loss of his wife. A few, a few years later, Bunyan comes under extreme scrutiny by the Anglican Church. And so they bring him into court, they bring him into a hearing, and he's commanded by the church to stop preaching the gospel. He refuses. And what's the result? He is imprisoned for 12 years. 12 years. So Bunyan's time in chains would actually prove to be the testing ground for his faith. While in jail, he actually wrote his prison meditations as he pondered how the Lord was working through this very dark season of his life. He wrote this, I am indeed in prison now, in body, but my mind is free to study Christ, and how unto me he is so kind." For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. My faith and hope they cannot lame. Above them I shall be. So Bunyan realized that every bit of his imprisonment, every portion of his suffering was a training ground for the future. He saw the cost of his running and understood it was painful, but he looked forward in faith at the prize of running the race well. He knew the hope that could not be made lame. His hope was sure. His hope was in God, the one who was making him fit every single day in prison, that he would reach the prize, that he would reach the glories of heaven where his God reigns. And here lies the ninth reason that Jesus came to die. And it's exactly what we're going to see this morning because we aren't here being made fit for the here and now. No, Jesus came to die to make us fit for heaven. And that's where our lives in John Bunyan's intertwines because we, as God's children, are called to endure the cost of running and look forward to the prize of the race. We look forward to the Lord Jesus himself. So if you would this morning, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And that's uh, page 585 if you have the Bibles from outside here. And as you open up your Bibles, it's just helpful for you to know that the, that the book of Hebrews is one sermon that's being preached by an unknown preacher. So just think of some of the sermons that you hear at Christ Proclamation Church, right? You have explanation where we're explaining the text. There's some illustrations, but then you have application, right? And so that's what we're actually going to see this morning in Hebrews because the preacher is delivering his application. We're at the end of the book. 
So it's all based on what we've heard from the sermon prior that he's now applying this to his hearers. So with that in mind, you're going to notice we're going to be working through a few different points here in the outline. Number one, the glorious example of endurance. Number two, the painful purpose of discipline. And three, the critical call for perseverance. So let's begin with one, the glorious example of endurance. And as we do, let us read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now the author here begins by stating, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. But what's the therefore, therefore? Well, just flip back to chapter 10. Look at verse 36 with me. So in chapter 10, the author says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You need endurance. And what is the promise of endurance? Verse 39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have what? Those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we're not the ones who are destroyed. We're the ones who endure. Those whose souls persevere. And so where does the author go next here? Just follow the logic. He goes in, verse, in chapter 11 to a list of those who have lived by faith. Those who have actually endured. Those whose souls persevered all the way to the end. And this is the idea that's in mind as we see the command for endurance in chapter 12, verse 1. Right? He said, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so cl closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, what exactly is the author trying to give us a picture of here? Well, he's envisioning an Olympic race that's run in the Colosseum filled with not just a bunch of random spectators, Right? Not a bunch of just random people, but it's run in the presence of a cloud of witnesses. It's run in the presence of the saints of old as seen in chapter 11. So the command is for the Christian to run the race with endurance. Right? It's long. It's a long race. And we aren't to waste time with things that are of no value in the end. Just think of the commands that we see here listed in chapter 12. Lay aside every weight. Lay aside sin which closely clings closely, but also run, run with endurance, the race that is set before us. So if you want to run with, en with endurance, it actually looks like something. It's hard work. It looks like laying aside the filth that clings to us and the distractions that deter us. But according to the author, not only is sin debilitating to the race being well, run well, right? But look, it says every weight, throw aside every weight. The things that look to trip us up from running well, it may not even be bad. It must be dropped off. 
Now, do you hear what the author's getting at here? It isn't just the things that are sinful that we need to lay aside. But maybe it's the things in our lives that are actually good and enjoyable, not sinful. So we need to examine our lives. We need to examine ourselves. What sins must we actually lay aside to run well this week? Right? We should be asking those questions to ourselves. But we also should be asking ourselves, what things in our life are getting in the way of us running the race well? Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a video game. Maybe it's a phone, a poisonous relationship, straight A's in school. Maybe it's even, this is a shocker, your theology books. One pastor once said, we must ask ourselves, what sin must we put to death? But also, in everything that I take part in, in everything I read or enjoy, does it actually help me run the race of the Christian life well? I think this is just so helpful to ask because we tend to think that, well, if I'm not sinning, then it's good to go. I can keep running and doing whatever I want to do. No, we need to examine our lives. We need to be more introspective, right? One can say, I love my phone. It takes wonderful pictures and everything, but does it actually help stir my heart for the Lord Jesus? Is it actually stirring me with greater affections for him? You know, one can say, this car is awesome. It drives so smooth. The tires are beautiful. I love it all. But does it help me run the race of godliness? Or is it just another idol that I'm piling up? What about maybe someone who says, this relationship is awesome. I love hanging out with this person. But does it help draw us ever nearer to the Lord Jesus? So we must evaluate every crevice of our lives, decipher what helps us run well and what things have been tied to our ankles for far too long and are prohibiting us from running well. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not just saying, you know, don't do this, don't do this. This isn't legalism. This isn't about any legalistic lifestyle. No, this is true liberty. It's freedom to run without weights and chains for the glory of God and for the good and joy of his people. So we must be all about God's business of throwing off every weight. And so verse 1 is so clear. The believer is to persevere to the end at all costs. But the author doesn't just leave us with this command evidence here, right? He's not done. But he provides actually be the model of endurance. He provides the Lord Jesus himself, the author and finisher of our faith. Just look at verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so close, clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So where do we turn our eyes in the race? Here it is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, according to this author, is the greatest example of endurance. And he shows it in two specific ways. Number one, he shows it in the cost of running, and two, the prize of running. Look at verse two again. Right? Look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Now notice the language that the author uses to display this cost of running, this cost of enduring. It's the same word that he actually uses in verse 1 for the believer, right? So verse 1 said the believer is to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, Jesus endured the cross in what manner? For the joy that was set before him. He's doing this purposefully to drive home an understanding here. The author's trying to make a clear connection between Jesus' running race and the Christian's call to run. And so what encouragement is this? This isn't a race that's just been made up, but we actually have a beautiful example to follow. He's saying, look at the ways that Jesus endured the sufferings of Calvary. He endured the momentary physical affliction. He endured the cost. He looked beyond the value of his own reputation. He despised the shame of the cross because he knew something was coming that was far greater. And in the same way, this is how you, believer, are to run the race that has been set before you. You follow in the footsteps of the maker. So we see that through Jesus, enduring the cross and enduring the shame comes to the prize of running, the joy set before him. The cost led to the prize. The cross leads to the crown. Just look at the latter part of verse 2. Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here is the prize. Here's the crown. Now just listen to Psalm 110 because it echoes what we see here in verse 3. Psalm 110.1 literally fulfills what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he did. God the Father was faithful to his promise to the Son of God. He endured the cross and was gloriously exalted to the throne of God. He received the prize... He endured and made it all the way to the reward. But now the author isn't done unpacking this glorious example of Jesus' endurance, is he? Right? He has more to say. Right? Verse 3, he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So not only do we consider the cost, right? Not only do we see that, But we also see the prize. And then he calls the church to consider how Jesus was actually beaten and battered. He took on hostility. Hostility was poured on the Lord Jesus. But recognize that it isn't without relief. Right? That is so encouraging. He doesn't leave. He was just beaten and battered. No. He endured the torment of men. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. So just notice once again, there's the cost of running. We clearly see it but there is certainly the prize of running. The cross, the cross for the crown. But what's the reason? Right? What's the purpose for telling the people of God this glorious example in Hebrews chapter 12? What's the author getting at? Just look at the latter part of verse three. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now just place yourself in a moment in the shoes of these Christians way back in the time of Hebrews chapter 12, right? They're suffering greatly. And what does this author tell them? Jesus' example of endurance is the encouragement you need right now. 
This is what you need. This is what you need. So stand firm. Jesus' example is here for you so that you, right now, as you're being beaten and battered, that you don't stop running, that you don't lose heart, but that you remain faithful. So here's the takeaway for the Christian. The race of the Christian is hard, no doubt. It's not without pain or suffering, but oh, Christian, fix your eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your very faith. Right? The race itself isn't eternal, but guess what? The reward is. It is so real and lasting. So glory awaits those who are immovable. That's what he's telling us. And so Jesus is actually your greatest example of the one who truly lived by faith in God, of the one who truly endured the cost, knowing full well that he would receive the prize of running well. He would receive glory, glory with the Father. You know, I think this is really hard to believe. So some of us sitting here may be like, no, the suffering's that hard, I can't see past the mountain ahead of me. But I think this is necessary to drive home to our hearts this morning because this reality transforms the way that we live our lives completely. This is the fuel to not only endure, but to empower us by faith when we endure the hardship. So Hebrews is clearly declaring here, look to Jesus, recall to mind the glory of the gospel, and do this without end. Right? We're given this example so that when you get into a car accident and you can't walk for six months, you can look to Jesus. Right? You can look to Jesus, the one who endured holding fast even in the midst of death and destruction, knowing sure well that glory awaited him. Death was not the end. And then endure. Right? You get fired from your job and are left without the slightest clue what to do next. You look to Jesus the one who endured the cross, knowing that the joy was laid before him. And you endure. You get cancer at the age of 36, and you have four months to live. You look to Jesus, the one who deserved praise and endured hardship by faith, knowing that God was going to seat him in heavenly places as king for all of eternity. Do you hear what I'm saying? This changes our orientation to the way that we live our lives. The cross, the burden, the weight always comes before the crown. And this example sets our eyes aflame with glorious hope of the future that's in store. That those who actually experience difficulty in the here and now are not done forever. So these Christians have experienced great difficulty And the author encourages them and us even this morning to look to Jesus in the midst of every single one of them. But he goes on a step further. He's not done with his argument. No, not only does the author call us to recalibrate our vision of Jesus as we walk through the various trials in in the race, but he transforms our perspective of the discipline that God brings about through the trials. He's changing the way we perceive what's going on in the here and now, which is where we see, too, the painful purpose of discipline. So let's just read together Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 through 11. 
He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 4. He writes, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So according to verse 4, the author clearly recognizes that his audience has experienced suffering, but they haven't experienced martyrdom. They're not being killed for their faith. Just look at the latter part of verse 4. They have not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood. So the audience's struggle isn't persecution leading to death, at least not yet, right? But it's a struggle against remaining sin that must be put off. The struggle currently for these people is against sin. So in light of the struggle against sin that's experienced, the author develops the pathway to actually encourage these Christians while they're facing tremendous hardship, while they're experiencing this fight, this struggle. So they're actually called, according to this author, they're called to remember that they are children of the king. Look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So that's an interesting way to go about it. A question like that, it's pretty loaded. He doesn't give them an easy way out here. No, they're told that they've actually forgotten that they're sons of the king of the universe. Have you forgotten the exhortation? But look how he reminds them. He shows them the Bible which I just love. He shows them the scriptures. He shows them what they read from since they were little, little kids. He says, oh yeah, turn here. Look at the Old Testament. Listen to verse five and six. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So in verses 5 and 6, he recalls Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, which clearly states that the Son of God, sons of God do not grow weary because of discipline. They don't grow weary because of the correction, the education that they experience at the hands of the Lord. And why not? Look at verse 6. It comes right from Psalm 94. For or because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He disciplines the ones he loves. Now, do you see the beauty of this statement? I mean, the people of God have forgotten the correction of the Lord is experienced by Christians because God loves those that are his, right? So in this case, discipline is not a sign of God's anger or punishment towards them. No, it's actually displaying his favor and acceptance of his people. It's actually for 
good. In other words, God disciplines, God disciplines, God's disciplining reminds us that we are actually his people. We are actually his children. We are part of his family. Now let me just pause here and ask us a question. Have we forgotten our sonship? Are we like the church here that's struggling? Have you forgotten the fact that no matter what comes into your life, it's actually utilized by God to teach you and correct you? So the trials that we experience, they're not without purpose. They come from God who loved you and called you his son. So here's the question that I've actually been asking myself throughout the entire week. Do I thank God for the trials that he brings in my life? Every one of them, no matter how hard. Or as one writer once said, can I look back at the trial and say, it is good for me that I was afflicted, as seen in Psalm 119.71. Is it good for me to be afflicted? This actually tells us, yes, it is. Verse 7, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, based on the way that this verse is translated, it may seem as though this is a suggestion, right? You could endure if you want. No, it's actually another command. So the author is trying to communicate that we must endure the sufferings. We must endure the suffering that we experience. Why? Because we endure suffering with the awareness that this is the good work that God has for his people right now. Just look what he says in the following statement. This is what God does to his sons. And so the son doesn't check out, but endures. The son remains. And how does he support his statement? That God is treating you as sons. Latter part of verse 7, a question, right? What son is there whom his father does not discipline? There's no good father that doesn't discipline his kids at one point in time, right? So what is the author trying to hammer into these Jewish believers? He's trying to get into their heads that the reality that they are truly being treated as sons is clarity that they're actually a part of the people of God. They are family. And so he's just doubling down on what he's already been referencing in verse 6, right? God disciplines the one he loves. It's true. Which then brings us to the unfortunate flip of the coin in verse 8, right? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then what? Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now just catch the if-then statement in this verse, right? He's building a contrast between the disciplined and the undisciplined child. So if there is no discipline, then you aren't actually his children. You're illegitimate children, meaning you aren't God's child. You aren't in the family, which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, when I was a kid, one of my closest friends and I would play baseball in his backyard. And so we would throw the ball around and we'd take batting practice, hardball. Okay, and so one time we were doing some last uh, swings, batting practice, and I said, all right, give me one uh, pitch right down the plate, let me smack this thing. And so he throws the ball, and it was like one of those movies, right? Slow motion, the ball's coming. And I'm winding up, close my eyes, swing, and I hit the ball, and then I hear the crash of a window pane, 
in right field, uh, and I, I was in big trouble. And here's why. I was at my neighbor's house, six-foot-tall window pane, like $800, and somebody had to pay for it. Now, in that moment, my friend's, my friend's mom wanted to discipline me, but she didn't. Who did? My parents. My parents disciplined me. Why? Because they're my parents. Parents discipline their own children. You don't typically go around disciplining other kids. I mean, sometimes that may be the case. But that's not what we see here in this text. No true son or daughter is spared by their parent for the good of the child. So God disciplines his people. And if you're not a son, you have no participation in the loving act of correction, reproof, and care. You actually miss out on a blessing that God gives to his kids. So the preacher's audience has forgotten their sonship. But it's not enough to know you're a child of the king. You actually need to feel the weight of it, which is exactly what he does. He gives an analogy of our earthly fathers to highlight the significance of our heavenly father. So we see the sonship is actually experienced. Look with me at verses 9 through 10. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. So in this section, we have the sonship idea experienced, which is typical throughout the book of Hebrews. So the preacher continues to give these analogies that are highlighting earthly to spiritual realities. Just look back at verse 9. We have had earthly fathers. They disciplined us, and in return, they are respected. So the logical argument zooms in on sonship. He argues from the lesser, earthly fathers, which is found in the earthly realm. Good parents actually discipline their kids to the greater degree. God the Father disciplined disciplining his children. And what's the result of discipline? It's honor and respect. Right? Just think about what happens in your home. Right? Your child wants to touch the hot iron, and you say, no, don't touch that. That's not good. And the goal is that in light of the discipline, they actually listen, and they don't touch the hot iron. They respect the word that's spoken. So what the author looks to help us see is that if this is the case in the earthly sense, the lesser sense, how much more is this true with our heavenly father? So I just hear what he's arguing. The fatherly discipline from the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe is of such greater value than that of our earthly fathers that we should love, we should trust, we should respect our father as he disciplines those he loves. Right? This isn't a malicious father who's just sitting in the corner of the room laughing like an evil doctor ready to destroy the world, right? No, he uses every single circumstance for our good. That's a fact. But now do we believe it? Do we actually believe that to be the case? The father is good to his children in every single way imaginable. But you know, some of us may be asking questions like this right now. What's the point of this discipline, right? How does he bring about difficulty? Is he really good if we are just disciplined? Is that actually how a good father works? I think those are great questions. 
But the author actually gives us wonderful answers, even better answers. And this is where we see seed sonship realized because here's the point of the cost of running that we saw earlier in chapter 12, and verse 12, verses one through three. The point of the discipline. Here's the cost and here he's gonna show us this is the prize. This is what is waiting after the cost that comes. Look at verse 10b and 11, right? We can't miss this this morning. It says, but he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So you see, the Father disciplines those he loves. It isn't for naught. What's the purpose? It's for their good. And what does that actually mean? Right? How does the Father discipline for our good? Well, just look with me at the end of verse 10. So that we, God's children, may share his holiness. So the good that God has in mind is actually our future and greatest good. It's partakers in future holiness with God. Right? And if you don't believe it, just look at what it says next. He contrasts the here and the now of trials and suffering and then claims the discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? It seems really terrible. But look, he shifts, he contrasts the orientation. He writes later, right, verse 11, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So just see the stark contrast between the current moment's pain and the future. The later reward, righteousness, which is the exact same idea that is spoken of at the end of verse 10. The holiness idea that the children share in and the fruit of righteousness soon to be provided are synonymous terms. He's getting at the same idea. So the realization that takes place is that as sons, your father in heaven disciplines you. He corrects, he educates, he molds you so that you become partakers in God's holiness with him for all of eternity. That's bigger than my brain can handle. (laughs) He's working like that in our suffering. It's the fruit of the painful discipline which then leads to the peace from corruption when we encounter the actually incorruptible. And so here it is. This is the ninth reason Jesus came to die. To make us fit for heaven. Through trials, disciplined by God, that one day we would be holy in his presence, in his likeness, forever secure, enjoying the rock and our redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Now how unbelievable is that? Christ came and lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death we deserve to die and rose from the dead that as heirs to the throne of God, we would be made fit for heaven forever. And so the beauty of the ninth reason is that he's making us fit right now. Where you're sinning, he's doing that work. And that's what we see in verses 12 through 14. So there's a critical call for us to actually persevere now as we await for glory that we would cross the finish line and we would go and be with God in eternity forever. Now just look with me at verses 12 through 14. 
It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now verses 12 through 14a can be broken down into three helpful categories, I think, as we look to apply the word to ourselves this morning. So one, we need to run with vigor. Two, we need to run with purpose. And three, we must run in community. So first, the race for holiness is run with vigor. Just look at verse 12, right? Therefore, so in light of everything we just talked about, the necessity of faith in God who lovingly disciplines us in the midst of the race, right? He says, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. So the author is still using the race analogy. He's not finished with it. He's encouraging these believers to run with vigor, to fight, to lift their weary bodies up and run, right? He writes, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, So this is proclaimed to someone who's battered. He's talking graciously to these people. Right, if if any of you have ever run a marathon, I mean, good for you, I've never done that, I probably never will, right? But from what I've heard, you actually hit a brick wall about the 18 to 20 mile mark. That would be devastating to me, right? So what, what does the brick wall actually tempt you to do? From what I've heard, it actually tempts you to give up. So here's the reality. We all hit that wall, right? But what do we do when we hit it? What do we do when we hit that wall? We don't give up. The people of God don't stop. In fact, not only don't we give up, but we run harder. We run with vigor. We don't sag our arms and just kind of walk. No, we pick up our hands and we keep moving. We keep pumping. That's what he's calling these Christians who are being beaten and battered to do to keep moving. And that's what we're called to do. As the people of God, we keep running the race. But the race of vigor is one that is quite difficult if you don't actually run with any purpose, which is what we see in verse 13. Right? It says, And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So it's actually crucial to notice the and at the start of verse 13, which is connecting, it's the hinge, to verse 12. It perfectly connects. Not only do we run with vigor, but we run with purpose. I mean, just envision the picture that the author is trying to cast here for us. If the racetrack is filled with potholes and divots, what's going to happen while you're running the race? Your feet are going to grow lame. You're going to trip. You're going to probably break an ankle, right? Your feet may snap. So what's the command? The command is to clear the pathway to set it apart, to go on godly paths that actually lead you well on the road of holiness. So we actually need to free ourselves by the power of the Spirit from obstacles in our way and fight against sin in our hearts to run as God has actually called us to run. So we must examine our hearts. And I think a great way to do this is to ask a close friend or maybe even your spouse to work through questions to help identify how you're doing spiritually. Like right now, questions like, what are some potential blind spots that I may not be seeing so clearly? Right? Or if there is one sin issue that I should be putting to death and walking in righteousness right now, what would it be and why? Where are you seeing this develop in your life? So you see, you start to investigate 
the terrain of your heart and you put off sin. No tolerance of it. No matter the degree of difficulty or the nuisance that it causes you to put that particular sin to death. But why? Because as we walk on straight paths, pathways of holiness, we are being strengthened not to run lame, but to run the race well, to run the race all the way home to glory. And not only are we called to run with vigor and purpose, but this race is actually run in community, which means that peace must be pursued continually. We can't neglect it. And so certainly the author says we can't, right? Verse 14a, strive for peace with everyone. Now it's crucial to understand that this word strive here means to pursue, aggressively, adamantly press forward for, which means that Christians should be striving, running hard for peace with their brothers and sisters in the local church, running the race in community, not in division. So how about you? Are you striving for peace? Are we, as the body of Christ, striving for peace? Are we just striving for tolerance? Let's just get along and just move on. So peace isn't a secondary command here in this race. It's actually a priority to holiness. So we actually need to make peace a desire, a burden of our hearts that we would run well the race together. But not only in this section is this author highlighting the race for holiness, but God calls for his people to truly be holy. This is the most startling and significant point we must understand this morning, right? Because if we actually miss this idea, we misunderstand the entire reality that has been spoken of this morning. We misunderstand the strivings for holiness as seen in verses 12 through 13. We misunderstand why God actually disciplines us in verses 4 through 11, and we actually misunderstand the glory of Christ's holy work as seen in verses 2 through 3. So we need to heed the warning. Look at verse 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What a sober reality. Do you hear the language that this author is using? It says, without holiness, it's impossible to see the Lord. Why? Because God is infinitely holy and no sin can dwell in his presence. In fact, it would be outside of his nature to dwell in harmony with that which is defiled. Holiness is necessary. And so holiness, the holiness of his people is of great importance, not only to this author, but it's of great importance to our God. And this is the first time, this isn't the first time we've heard this language of holiness in the Bible, right? Just listen to the Gospels. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew 5.8. He said, blessed, happy are the pure in heart. Why are they happy? What is it about pure in heart? Why? For they shall see God. So the discipline of the people of God brings about holiness. It brings about life eternally with God where we see him and enjoy him. And man, do we, as the people of God, want to see and be with all the saints but, even better, with God himself. But why? It's not because of the great music we're going to hear. There's probably going to be pretty great music. It's not because of the saints of old. It's not for the deceased friends and family. No! Because God 
has promised that after this corrupt world that's filled with anger, disease, destruction, death, when it's all gone, what stands? God does. We get to be with our maker. So don't miss this. What's the goal at the end of the race? What's at the finish line? It's God himself that's there. The Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, is there to enjoy forever. And it is not available for those who are not holy. That's a work of God in the heart of his people. That's why it is so crucial to see that God's disciplining is for your good because your greatest good is God. That's your greatest good. Just listen to Psalm 73, 28. The nearness of God is what? The nearness of God is my good. He's the reward. He's the prize. And so there's a necessity of of holiness to find your greatest joy eternally in God. And apart from holiness, you don't get God. You get eternal damnation. And so there are those of you who are not pursuing holiness. And it's not necessarily because you're not trying hard enough, but it's because you actually have no desire for God. You're not one of God's children. But here's the hope. Today can be the day of salvation for you. So I appeal to you to recognize your abundant need and put your trust in Christ alone, the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross that you deserved, the one who took the hostility you deserved upon himself, that you would not grow weary for all of eternity. So trust him and glory in his holy presence forever. And oh, dear believer, This is the best part. In the death of your Savior, in the way in which he died, the Son of God united us with himself as sons of the living God. So we're children of the King. And what's the outpouring of this reality? He makes his children fit for heaven. He disciplines us so that you would be holy, that you would see God. You, daughter, You son of the king. God's doing this right now. He's training you right now for the eternal goal, for God himself. That's what he's doing in his people. And this is what he was doing in John Bunyan's life hundreds of years ago. Listen to the craving for the reality, the one that he endured the cross and he received the crown. Listen to what ended in his life. Look what he received after enduring so much suffering. He remarks on heaven and says, I see myself at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I am going now to see that head that was crowned with thorns and that face that was spit upon for me. I have formerly lived by faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight. His face I have desired more than they that they who desired the light of the sun. I delighted and desired the king. So one day our toilsome journey will end, and we will have peace with our God who has kept us all along the way. May God give us the grace to run 
that we'd examine ourselves and that we would truly endure, that we would make it all the way home to eternity in his presence forevermore. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Number nine, to make us fit for heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you recognizing that we do not make ourselves fit for heaven, but your son has purchased our lives. He has purchased us. He's raised us up from death to life, and now he calls us to walk in newness of life. We pray that we would run well, that we'd run hard for the glory of God and for the good of your people. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.